0: Well, good morning and welcome, everybody, to the John Owen Centre Conference for 2011 on the theme, Reaching the Human Heart. My name's Gary Williams. I'm the director of the John Owen Centre here. It's a great pleasure to see you all here. Thank you for coming. Welcome. Uh, we have been praying that it will be a fruitful, uh, engaging, mind-stretching, heart-warming conference that will further equip you uh, in your different ministries. The aim of the John Owen Centre is to provide theological refreshment for pastors Um, It's not intended just to uh, stretch minds, therefore it isn't a purely academic exercise, Uh, so we hope very much that this will be a refreshing occasion for all of you. If you're not a pastor, you are of course welcome. Uh, Others are very welcome to come along and benefit from things as well, Um, and especially elders in churches, uh, for whom we hope it will be helpful too. Our conviction really is that theology matters. Uh, I at least feel that we're swimming against a great tide of pragmatism. Um, And uh, the aim really is to provide serious theological work which is directed to the refreshment of pastors and the upbuilding of the church, therefore. Um, But we're unashamed about it being serious um, and theological. That's what we're trying to do. Hence the conference. The conference is an opportunity to think about what a human person is, how a human person works and functions, and therefore how a human person is changed uh, by... Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, through the Gospel. So that's the, the idea of the conference. We are melding together, hopefully, different disciplines. We haven't all got together, but I mean, I suppose the ideal would be that the, the speakers would all have disappeared for a few days of uh, shared reflection before the conference. Um, but that, that's not very realistic, I don't think. Um, so we hope that it coheres and, and, and fits together, but we'll find out. And if it doesn't, then we'll have a good punch up in the discussions after each of the papers and, and work out who is right. Uh, But the idea is that the the different disciplines fit together. That we begin with the Old Testament this morning, that we then turn to the Lord Jesus as the proper man, as Luther called him, uh, the perfect man, and how he functioned as a person. uh, That we then come to the New Testament picture of the human person. We then head into uh, some historical material this evening with the Martin Lloyd Jones Memorial Lecture. uh, Michael Haken uh, telling us about Andrew Fuller and his reflections on this topic and his conflict with Sandomanianism. And then tomorrow. At the Puritans, uh, I'll be talking a bit about their understanding of the human person. And then looking in particular at love, uh, mainly with Isaac Watts uh, as uh, the supreme uh, fruit in the Christian life. And then at the end, drawing all these things together and thinking about how that uh, works itself out in Christian ministry today. So that's the plan, that's, the, that's the, the vision for how the whole thing fits together. And I hope very much that as you sit there listening, uh, you will feel it uh, fitting together and see how it forms a, a coherent whole. Uh, a few practical things. There's a the bookstore at the back. The bookstore contains a mix of things. Uh, there are books by speakers and there are books on the kind of topic area that we're looking at as well. Uh, that will be open pretty much in the breaks I think so have a look uh, there uh, at those things. Uh, the proceedings will be recorded and you as those who have come get discounts uh, on the recording so if you think you want to listen to it again or to give it to somebody else. Uh, then do uh, sign up for recordings of the sessions. Uh, lunch will be at one o'clock and will be served in the dining room where coffee was. If I could ask you to go in there and uh, help yourself to the food and then sit in there and when the dining room is full, some of you will need to come and sit at the back in here. But if we all go down there to get a food and fill up in there first, uh, then that would work well, I think. Uh, if you have a phone, now might be the time to turn it off um, or to silent or whatever you do with it. Uh, And if there is a fire, uh, there is a fire exit, I think we can go out here and here and there's a door at the back, so you'll want to leave if there's a fire. Um, I'm now going to hand over to David Green. David is the Vice Principal here at LTS and he's going to chair the first session.
1: Thank you very much Gary Um, I've been told to come up here just so you don't think I'm presuming (laughs) Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce this first session and our speaker Gary Williams uh, sorry Gary Miller too many Gary's Um, I confess I hadn't met Gary until about a quarter of an hour ago but I did know him to some extent through this book Now Choose Life, his really excellent book on Deuteronomy. There are a few copies left on the bookstore, so if you don't have this, I really do commend it to you. It's an excellent book on Deuteronomy. Um, You will have had some information about uh, Gary Miller from the leaflet, and in a way, I think he perfectly embodies what the John Owen Centre is about because he has uh, impeccable academic credentials. Uh, as you can see, next year he's about to take a position of, as the principal at Queensland Theological College in, in Brisbane. But at the same time, currently, he's in pastoral ministry. And as uh, Gary, as in Williams, has already intimated, we, we, we don't see that there should be a separation between theology, even theology that's academically rigorous and, and demanding and at times esoteric perhaps, and the practical business of pastoral ministry. So we're very grateful to Gary Miller for for coming and addressing uh, a very interesting and very relevant subject of, of how the Old Testament views the human person. Before he comes to speak, I'm going to read from Psalm 8 and then commit this time to the Lord in prayer. So if you want to follow, turn to Psalm 8 now, please. whether Gary has a view about whether you should read the headings or not I'm going to the, to the, to the choirmaster or the director according to the Gittith, a Psalm of David O Lord, our Lord how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's come to God in prayer. O Lord, our Lord, how fitting it is that The beginning of our time together, we should remember your greatness. Remember that we owe our very existence to you, and that what we are as human beings is what you have determined for us to be. That we're not here to define ourselves or to decide what we would like to be in the world. Rather, we are here. At this conference to discover what you want us to be in the world what you have intended us to be what you made us to be and what you redeem us to be in the Lord Jesus Christ and we therefore pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us within us that he would give us understanding that he would bless us as we listen help us to concentrate, help us to grasp new things help us also in our fellowship together and in our conversations at meal times and other break times, we pray that this would be a fraternal a Christian brothers and sisters together uh, meeting and enjoying fellowship those things which uh, join us together our participation, our partaking in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his saving work. We pray that the spirit of the conference would be uh, one of fellowship and of mutual love and of help. We pray for uh, Gary Miller as he speaks to us in a moment. We pray you give him clarity of thought. We pray that you would have been with him in his preparation, that he would have been blessed in studying the subject that he's presenting to us, and that we would be stimulated in our thoughts and also in our discussion together that we would help one another as iron sharpens iron but above everything else we pray that at the end of these two days we would bring more glory to you by our hearts and minds being full of the truth of you and a zeal for you and a love for you and we pray this in Jesus name Amen.
2: Amen. Uh, thanks very much for your welcome uh, both uh, Gary and, and David and, um, it's a rather strange thing kicking off a conference that you've never been to in a place that you've never visited in a room full of people where you've only met two or three and I don't know if you've ever had the experience in a really posh restaurant you know, someone else has paid for you to go to a really posh one and what, the, what, what often happens is they plunk something down in your plate you know, before you even get to the starter and they say something like "Oh, you know, compliments of the chef and uh, I've had that experience once or twice, and sometimes I've looked at it and wondered what it was or what one was supposed to do with it. And sometimes you take it and it really does set you up for the rest of the meeting. So whether in an hour's time you're saying, what was that? Or whether you really do feel set up for the riches that are to come uh, later in the conference, I'm, I'm very glad that you've given me the chance uh, to point you to the scriptures. A minister was once visiting in an, an old folks' home. And the lady he was looking for wasn't in her room where she normally was. So he went into the day room and he saw her sitting in the corner, you know, with her head down in the corner, dozing peacefully. And he gently took her hand and woke her up. And she looked at him slightly dazed and confused. He said, Do you know who I am? And the old lady sat up and announced in a loud voice to the other occupants of the day room, this man has forgotten who he is. Can anybody help him? <laughs> now, the questions of who we are and what we are and what we're like are terribly important. But as far as Old Testament studies are concerned, this has been a hugely neglected area. Um, when this book came out in uh, 1973, uh, hans Walter Voll's Anthropology of the Old Testament, uh, it was as if the final word had been spoken and there was therefore nothing more to be said. And after that, discussions of Old Testament anthropology basically spiraled off into purely anthropological studies or purely sociological studies. And basically, that was that. But there's much more to be said, because uh, what uh, Wolf and others helpfully did was categorize the Old Testament's use of language, highlighted some of the main categories of Old Testament Hebrew thought. Uh, but neither Wolf nor anyone who's followed has said much about the Old Testament view of people within the flow of Old Testament theology, let alone in the context of biblical theology or the preaching of the church. That's why I have found it helpful and enriching to think again about this whole area. So here's what we're going to do in the rest of the time we have this morning as, as I try to lay some kind of solid foundation for the rest of the conference First, I am going to give you a brief orientation to the language and thought of the Old Testament when it comes to describing what we are. Um, for some of you, that will rem- remind you of stuff you've already, you already know, some things you may have forgotten, uh, but it may open up one or two new emphases. Then we'll move on to the ground that Wolf and the others say little about. What we are like in action, how people function in the Old Testament, and that will involve spending a little bit of time looking at Genesis 3 and how the implications of the fall narrative have been massively underplayed in this area and then in what's left of the talk I want to highlight how this Old Testament or I would say biblical anthropology is worked out within the preaching of the Old Testament itself so how does Moses preaching and Joshua's preaching and so on take up this theme and run with it before finally talking a little bit about the resultant possibility of change in the Old Testament. And we'll have a look at Abraham, Jacob, Moses as individuals, and again we'll look back at Moses preaching. So that's where we're going. Um, So let's get started. What are we? What is a human being according to the Old Testament? Now the obvious place to begin is in Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, Male and female he created them. Now I suspect that if any of us were asked to give a talk on the nature of humanity then almost without a second thought that's where we'd turn to as we began. The, the image of God idea. However what is really surprising within the Old Testament itself is that virtually no attention is given to this theme. Um, we'd be hard pressed to find a single passage which refers directly to this towering statement. Psalm 8 probably alludes to it, but, but after that there really isn't much that takes this idea of the image of God and expands it that, to, to explain what we are. Now, as an aside to this, I do think it gives significant <laughs> support to the interpretation of Genesis one twenty seven, which focuses on the role of Adam as God's image, ruling as God's representative, rather than uh, dealing with the anthropological implications of the state of the statement. But the full discussion of that is for someone else on another day. Uh, for now, I just want to move you along to chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis, which is actually a greater import for our discussion. Here's what it says. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The nephesh hayah. Now alongside Ecclesiastes 12.7 which talks about the dust of our bodies returning to the earth and our ruach or spirit returning to God this is one of the classical texts for the traditional dualistic view of humanity in the Old Testament. We're made up of a body and soul or flesh and spirit. You you could describe this as kind of Christian Platonism um, where we're made up of dust or or flesh which perishes and soul which is eternal. So Calvin comments on this verse I take nephesh for the very essence of the soul. For Moses intended nothing more than to explain the animating of the clayey figure, um, that's how it's translated, uh, whereby it came to pass that man began to live. In other words, this is the creative gift of God. He, He makes us living souls. But here's where we run into a problem. Whilst that may be what Genesis 2 is saying, it's very hard to demonstrate that conclusively. For as the Old Testament unfolds, such is the variety of language and expression that it's surprisingly difficult to tie down what the text is actually saying about human nature or anthropology. Uh, this is where uh, Wolf and others have done a good job. So let me very quickly uh, point out the contours of their findings. I should say some of these classifications are straight from there, some from John Cooper's work that I'll refer to in more detail later, and, and some are just my own. So here's a very sketchy overview of the Old Testament's anthropological language. Okay. Look first at the word nephesh that occurs in, in Genesis 2-7. Basically used in five ways. Sometimes nephesh is used anatomically. It means throat or neck. So Psalm 105 verse 18 says, His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck, his nephesh, was put in a collar of iron. Quite clearly, that means a part of the body. Sometimes it means that the kind of life force, for want of a better expression, so Leviticus 17.11 says, for the, the nephesh of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Proverbs 8.36, for whoever finds me finds life, but whoever fails to find me, injures his life, uh, injures himself, it's translated in the ESV, but it's nefesh. Again, it's the life force, it's being alive. Sometimes nefesh can be used to, to refer to dead people. Happens a couple of times in Numbers, Numbers 5. Who is, a, who is unclean through touching the Nephesh, which is clearly the dead in the context. But sometimes the Nephesh can be the organ of human emotions and feelings. Exodus 23 verse 9 says, you know the nephesh of a sojourner for you were sojourners in Egypt. You know what it feels like. You know the heart of a sojourner. Or Psalm 107 verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. Again, both nephesh he fills with good things. And sometimes this word can be used as something like a reflex, as something like a reflexive pronoun. So Genesis twelve thirteen Abraham says that my life, nephesh, may be spared for your sake. And Psalm 103, verse 1, and you to bless the Lord, O my soul. It's hard to work out. Is that just a, a way of talking about himself? Is it a, what's called a synecdoche? Is he, he referring to his nephesh as a way of talking about his whole person? It's hard to say. Now we can say that, that whilst nefesh does refer to feeling sometimes and inner being in a general sense, as you can see, it's such a slippery term. It's very hard to show conclusively that it definitely means anything like soul in a platonic sense. It, it might, but it's hard to show. So that, that's, that's nefesh. Uh, second term is ruach, breath or spirit. Basically, it's used in three ways. Sometimes it literally does just mean breath. (gasps) That. Isaiah 42. Sometimes it means the life force given by God. It's that very specific breath that we saw in Genesis 2 verse 7, where God actually breathed life, makes us a living nephesh, as we saw. Psalm 104 verse 29. Uh, However, the third use is a little different because sometimes talking about our ruach, it, it can refer to the seat of our abilities. To reason, or choose, or deliberate, or will, or hate, or rebel, or be depressed, be courageous. First Kings, just give you three references and we'll look at one. First Kings 10 verse 5, you'll find it used like that. Also in Job 15 verse 13, and also in Ezra 1 verse 5. This is what Ezra 1 5 says. Uh, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So, Ruach is where you you want to do things, the motivating faculty, if you like. Now, it is important that when you see this mixed-up use, that there doesn't seem to be any kind of view where the soul is set against the body. Breath can mean our literal breath, it can mean where we want things, it can mean the life force given to us. It's quite flexible. Similarly, you see the same thing in the word for flesh, which is Bashar. Sometimes that can mean muscle tissue, you know, like the flesh of your enemies lying on the battlefield, Isaiah 49. Sometimes it's used as a word for a living body, Numbers 8. Sometimes it's used to denote relationships, as we say, our own flesh and blood, Genesis 37. Sometimes it's flesh set over against God. Human beings is limited. Psalm 56, verse 4. But you won't find anything in the Old Testament which sets up a flesh-spirit opposition. Very little of that. So bear with me, we're we're halfway through. And uh, uh, once we've done this, we'll move on to some implications The the other way that the Old Testament speaks about the body is is talking about our organs, our inner parts. Sometimes it's our kidneys, sometimes it's our our bowels. Now, Hebrews didn't seem to know a lot about biological function. What did what inside the body. Um, But they knew that they were organs that were important. (laughs) uh, But they also spoke of the organs as bearers of spiritual or moral or ethical impulses. So, Proverbs 14, verse 33, you'll find that our bowels can have that sort of function. And um, Proverbs 43 says this, uh, Proverbs 14, 33, um, wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. That's, Wisdom rests in the bowels of a man of understanding, is is the expression. And the kidneys do the same kind of thing in Psalm 16, verse 2, 73, verse 21, where kidneys, heart, bowels can be used interchangeably. And then the the big one. uh, The word heart is used 814 times um, in, in the Old Testament. And sometimes you'll be terribly surprised to know that it means the fleshy organ that beats in our chest. It's, that accounts for quite a few of the functions. But it also appears to mean the hidden control center of the whole human being. Uh, Wolf says it includes everything that we ascribe to the head and brain, the power of perception, reason, understanding, insight, consciousness, memory, knowledge, judgment, sense of direction, discernment. The entire range of conscious and perhaps even unconscious activities of the person is located in and emanates from the heart. Uh, So says John Cooper in his book, uh, Body, Soul and Immortality. So everything is found in the heart. Personality, character traits, emotions, moods, the locus of thought, deliberation, choice, action, source of love and hate. All higher functions take place in the heart. Now it's, it's never irrational. The heart is always thinking as well as feeling. There's no separation in Hebrew between the two. Nor is any of this stuff dissociated from the organ. Um, that The way in which uh, the Old Testament speaks, that it can speak quite happily about the fleshy thing in our chest being the source of our emotions. And it just doesn't spell that out. There's, it's a bit frustrating, but that's the way it goes. If you want to see some of the, the variety, just look at First Samuel 25, verse 37. If you're, you're taking these down, you'll see Psalm 25, verse 7, the feelings. Psalm 21, verse 2, you, you'll find the discussion of the will. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 3, inter- interestingly, the heart is used 51 times in Deuteronomy. And almost all was about decision-making. Uh, deciding to obey God it also occurs about 130 times in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes um, which is again is not, uh, it's not unexpected if the heart is where you make your decisions, where you pledge your allegiance um, so, so let me summarize as, as we see how the Old Testament talks about what we're made of what we actually are it seems that both spiritual and physical organs if you like or mental and physical organs have spiritual and physical functions it's all mixed in together there's no strict delineation it's also clear that that synecdoche is very common that often in hebrew you use a part of the body to describe the whole person it's also very tricky to work out when an anthropological point is being made and when it is simply a point about the whole person See, humanity is consistently treated as a whole package. John Cooper sums it up. He says, there is such variety in the way the terms are used that it is impossible to arrive at a single, theoretically clear model of human nature from the Old Testament. Now, if only others just, uh, displayed the same reticence and humility, I think it might make the discussion a bit easier. Now, please don't mishear me. Could it allow for some understanding of humans being created with a soul? Yes, it could. As we'll see, at times it sounds very, very like it. Does it require it? Well, not really, at least not in a strict kind of Christian platonic sense. The jury remains out on that one. Now, for me, that isn't a particular problem. Because if we are biblical theologians just because we haven't got all the answers by the time we've got two-thirds through the book, that is not really an issue. So I, I shall leave it to Robert to clarify later in the conference the New Testament position, and then I have absolutely no problem in reading the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. Just for the sake of this conference, I'll hold off doing it until we've got to the New Testament. So I hope you hear what I'm saying. I'm saying that on the basis of the Old Testament alone, we can't really construct uh, an accurate anthropological model yet. But I'm not ruling out the possibility of doing it or that there is a way of reading the Old Testament anthropologically that is particularly helpful. Now, um, let me say a couple of things about why this matters and a couple of ways in which the basic insights of Wolfe I think have actually led us astray a little bit. Um, since the time this book was written, it has become Diriger de to describe the hebrew view of humanity as holistic and to set it over against greek dualism now as i've seen there's a little bit of truth in this in the old testament people are treated as units as as personal wholes, if i could put it like that rather than a combination of disparate elements like a soul and a body for example however i think the way in which this has been used or applied is extremely problematic let me simply point out a couple of examples The first is in the area of missiology. Uh, In the past uh, twenty years, um, missiology has become a key part of theological thinking and discussion in the the evangelical world. I think it's seminar. I think I think we'd won lecture on missiology. Um, Those days have changed, Uh, and partly that's because there's been a widespread uh, reaction against a kind of evangelism that was completely divorced from compassion or sympathetic understanding of the reality of people's lives. It's caricatured as only being concerned with saving souls. Now I can accept this, this was probably a necessary corrective in some cases, although I do suspect that there were actually relatively few mission projects that, actually, that ever lived up to that caricature. But this concern for the whole person, rather than just the spiritual has found biblical support of some kind in these these Old Testament texts that view people as people, if I can put it like that. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but so strong has been the shift that now to suggest that mission should be anything other than holistic or to prioritise evangelism above any other part of the mission of God, whether that be educational, ecological, economic, or anything else, is to sound like a theological dinosaur at best or a downright heretic at worst. Um, it would be overstating the case to say that the discussions of Old Testament anthropology have driven this shift, but they've certainly contributed to it. And I'm not sure they're actually built on very firm foundations. It's interesting, for example, to see that in Chris Wright's monumental The Mission of God, there is an entire chapter devoted to mission and God's image based on Genesis 1 verse 27 but there is no mention or discussion of any other texts on Old Testament anthropology. Uh, and the idea that we should be holistic in our mission is simply assumed throughout. So, so that's one area that I think some questions are raised by, by our preliminary findings on the Old Testament. And the second area is which in which these anthropological texts have been taken up and applied, is in the discussions of immortality of the soul. Basically, the annihilationism discussion. These pop up every now and again. Um, so, for example, in the work of the Seventh-day Adventist writer Samuele Bacchiacci, uh, commended by Clark Pinnock, amongst others, um, the studies of, of uh, Johannes Pedersen, an older Old Testament scholar, and Hans Walter Wilfer used as the basis for his contention that there is no basis for the belief in the survival of the soul at the death, death of the body. don't want to interact with Bakyachi in any detail here. Suffice it to say, there's a basic flaw in his argument. He insists that neither nephesh nor any of the other words we've looked at in the Old Testament means soul in any traditional sense. And he's probably got a case for that. But then he makes a massive jump to assert then that there is no basis for the immortality of the soul in the Old Testament. It's a case of one plus one making about eleven. Um, but, but you see that, that these word studies which may not seem the most exciting thing in the world, that they actually lead to some fairly profound points being made in the area of holistic mission and annihilationism and perhaps others. So, but where have we got so far? Where does all that leave us? Let me uh, make some tentative conclusions and sound two caveats before we move on. The, the first thing that I want to underline is when the Old Testament speaks of human nature, it does so with a whole range of words, usually connected with body parts. However, it's not always easy to tell when those body parts are simply being used to refer to the whole person, nor is there a hard and fast distinction between physical functions and spiritual ones. Wolf says the inner parts of the body and its organs are at the same time the bearer of man's spiritual and ethical impulses. So there is basically no attempt made to describe the inner workings of the human personality. Second, it's fair to say that there's, there's little clear evidence of classical platonic dualism in the Old Testament. It's just not how the Old Testament speaks about human beings. And thirdly, it is important that we don't read too much into the silence. It's fair to say that just because the text speaks to and about people as wholes, that that doesn't rule out any kind of dualism any kind of distinction between our bodies and our personalities or spiritual faculties. It may rule out classical Greek dualism, but we must be careful not to throw out the philosophical baby with the bathwater or the baby with the philosophical bathwater. I'm not sure which it is, but don't throw it out anyway. And and two caveats, and and here's one. Uh, Robert DeVito, in an article entitled Old Testament Anthropology and the Construction of Personal Identity, in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly in 1999, points out some really helpful things. He says, we have to be really careful um, to remember that the way in which we talk about self in the 21st century is dramatically different from the way in which Hebrew people talked about the self. So, for example, he says this, the emergence of the modern idiom of selfhood during the Enlightenment can account in some measure for the disposition of Old Testament scholars to see in the biblical record today a notion of personal unity that is a mirror image of their own. He goes on to detail how in contrast um, to our view of the self as a disconnected unit, in Hebrew thought, the person is absolutely embedded in society, in their family, in the covenant people. The, the, The Hebrews were far from philosophical Thatcherites. Um, nor, nor is the Old Testament idea of personal unity identical with the modern conception. DeVito, again, says, most writers merely take this unity for granted. But that unity is certainly a complex and differentiated unity, not a simple one. In short, the biblical character presents itself to us more as parts than a whole. He also interestingly adds that the notion of inner depths that have to be explored is completely alien to the Old Testament. He says there are no inner depths in the Old Testament because everything is there to be discovered. Um, My mother-in-law hasn't written a paper on Old Testament uh, anthropology, but for years she has said, what's in your heart comes out your mouth. And, And that is basically the Old Testament view. There's no disconnection between what we think and how we act. So one doesn't look within oneself to find self-knowledge. Everything happens out there in the real world. There's no disjunction. So in the Old Testament, if we hear, we obey. If we speak, we do. If we do, we are. And then he adds one more telling point. DeVito says that in the Old Testament, personal autonomy is sin. Whereas personal autonomy is a given of modern analysis. Now, that brings us to a place where it's very, very difficult to argue convincingly, as some have, that the Old Testament view of people like us is simply an early version of contemporary philosophical positions. So we're not comparing like with like. And the other caveat is cited in John Cooper John, from Calvin College's very helpful book, um, and it's echoed, it's echoed um, by, of all people, James Barr in a book called The Garden of Eden and the Hope of Immortality, published in 1993. Cooper accepts Woolf's work and builds on it, but he also points out that there's a strong strand of Old Testament material which suggests that there is something, some part of humanity, which survives the grave. It's not as simple as when our bodies return to the dust, that's it. He sets out a very helpful discussion of Sheol, in which he shows convincingly, I think, That whilst it may be a shadowy place, it is a real place. A a place where people exist in some kind of reduced existence. Uh, See Psalm 115, for example, verses 17 to 18. Psalm 88, verses 10 to 12. Where people are talking and acting like people. And of course, 1 Samuel 28. Where Samuel shows up when summoned by the witch of Endor. And I think Cooper's right when he suggests that Samuel emerges as a typical resident of Sheol. And further, weight is added to his arguments by places like Psalm 16, verse 10, where nephesh is used to describe dead people who are, in some way, disincarnate, if there's such a word, but who exist after death. And then we have the classic Old Testament resurrection passages on top of that. at Psalm 16, in Psalm 49, Psalm 73, verse 26, Job 19:25 to 27, Daniel 12:2, and Isaiah 26:19. Now, the Old Testament may not exactly scream at us about life beyond the grave, but there is at least what Cooper calls an audible whisper that points to the fact that either nefesh can describe something that lives on after death. Or there is something left when Nefesh and Ruach and all those other things, Bashar, are subtracted. And Cooper, in his book, uh, leaves us, says that that leaves us with a dualism that is compatible with holism. Uh, the first edition of his book in 1989, he calls it holistic dualism. There was a second edition in 2000, and at the suggestion of a friend, he'd reversed it. He calls it dualistic holism. Well, there you go. Um, But you see what he's trying to say. He said there, there is something holistic about people in the Old Testament, but we can't eliminate a dualism. There is something more to us than what goes when we die. He suggests it could be called Christian Aristotelian Platonism. There you go. I'll leave that to those who understand what he's talking about to, to evaluate that. He, he actually says it's not far off uh, what Thomas Aquinas argued for, interestingly. But I think at that point, we can be forgiven for thinking that we've been led a rather merry dance into a not very merry dead end. Because the Old Testament is frustratingly vague when it comes to the nature of the human person and construes people in such different terms that it, it seems... Difficult to use the Old Testament to deliver knockout blows in any debate on the nature of the heart or the soul or anything else. But before you run off to bang your head in a brick wall, let's turn to the vast amount of material in the Old Testament which deals with what we are like in action. And although it's usually completely ignored in work in Old Testament anthropology, it provides us with a vivid narrative picture of human nature, which has enormous implications not just for this discussion, but for the way we think and speak and preach and live. It also ties in exactly with what we find in the the literature like this in the Old Testament anthropology, that there is no division between what we do and uh, and how we act that acting wrongly is the evidence that we are wrong inside all the way through the Old Testament. So what are we like in action? Well, I would strongly argue that there is a part in the part of the Bible which is far more important for constructing a view of what people are like than any we've mentioned before, whether the image of God passage or any of the heart and soul passage and passages. And it is Genesis 3. Uh, This is tremendously important for any discussion of anthropology, but it's not mentioned at all. Um, now we have to understand that in Hebrew there is no straightforward way of saying. Um, no straightforward way of saying. I think um, that Hebrew husbands weren't able to go to their wives and say, "But I didn't mean to. I was really thinking of you." That would have sounded like gibberish in Hebrew. Come to think of it, apparently it sounds, to most, it sounds gibberish to most English-speaking women as well. But um, but but in Hebrew. If you think, you do. If you hear, you do. Love isn't something that happens emotionally. It doesn't just happen in here. But it it starts in here and is expressed in concrete actions, which explains why it's perfectly reasonable in Deuteronomy, for example, in a kind of covenant atmosphere, to demand love in a similar way uh, to ancient kings' demanded love and obedience from their vassals. But for our purposes, the most important implication is that when we see human beings in action, the, the biblical writers expect us to pick out, pick out very clear signals about what we're like. I don't think it's pushing it to say that in the Old Testament, human action is actually the key to understanding human nature. And I don't think it's overstressing it to say that the actions of our first parents in Genesis 3 set the, tra- the tra- trajectory uh, for the rest of the Old Testament as far as anthropology is concerned. Uh, we'll not read it, it's just, you might help, it might help you to have it open in front of you, but if you read over the fall narrative again in Genesis 3, very quickly you will discover this. In chapter 3, verse 2, you'll discover that human beings are innately unreliable and twist what God says. If you read on to verse 6, we discover that human beings are innately selfish and rebellious. Still in verse 6, we find out that human beings are proud and idolatrous and unbelieving. When we get to verse 7, we discover that human beings are now both insecure and deceitful. Read on to verses 12 and 13 and we discover that human beings are now both defensive And seemingly unable and unwilling to take any responsibility for anything. Now, of course, course for the Old Testament, if this is what we are like in action, this is what we are like. This is what we are. And I would argue that the Old Testament is far more concerned with these spiritual and moral realities than our inner psychological workings. And this I'm convinced is backed up by the shape and direction of the rest of the Old Testament. See, as far as the Old Testament writers are concerned, we don't really need to know how our nephesh, heart, kidneys and spirit fit together and whether they're different ways of talking about the same thing or not. We need to know what we're like. It's the second question of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort mayst live and die happily? Three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. That's, that's exactly consistent with the Old Testament's position on this. Now, how does this actually shape the way the Old Testament speaks to people? Now, it could take hours to do this, uh, but I just want to focus for a few minutes on the actual preaching in the Old Testament. When we see Old Testament people speaking to one another... What do they assume? Where do they start from? Take Moses, for example. As Moses stands in the plains of Moab, speaking to the people of Israel for the last time, what does he assume about them? Or what does his speech tell us about his view of their nature? Deuteronomy 29, 2-4 to four, says this. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Turn over to chapter 31, verses 24 to 29. Finished writing his book, writing the words of this law in a book. Commands the Levites, verse 29, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant. 27, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them for I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way I've commanded you and in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger through the work of your hands not exactly kind of rip roaring upbeat motivational stuff is it uh, 32 verses 4 and 5 I don't know some of you know the, I may have sung some years ago the song Ascribe greatness to our God the rock A God of faithfulness without iniquity Just and upright is he I always wanted somebody to write a second verse to that song They have dealt corruptly with him They are no longer his children because they are blemished They are a crooked and twisted generation Yes, we are a crooked and twisted generation. Repeat, you know, you can almost see it on the overhead screen. Now, what's Moses saying about human nature? He says it's utterly corrupt, broken. Our heart, the big problem is our heart does not work. Moses obviously passed this same perspective straight on to Joshua. Because if you turn on one book in the Old Testament, you will see the same thing. Joshua 24. Uh, Joshua 24, verse 19. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He won't forgive your transgressions and sin. So if you forget, forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. And the people say, no, but we'll serve the Lord, 21. Then Joshua said to the people, you're witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord to serve him. They said, oh yeah, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Verse 27, Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. That great statement, no, you know, that's a favorite of Chris, Christian cross stitch everywhere. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, my my mum's gone to be with the Lord, but in in our house, her cross stitches it hangs proudly on the wall. But when you see what Joshua was actually saying. He was saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord because I don't think any of you are going to do it. Because your hearts are corrupt. You see the same thing in, in Solomon's pre-evangel- pre-evangelistic preaching in Ecclesiastes. Now, all the way through, Solomon discusses everything that's going on over the, under the sun. Where does he get to at the end? What can we do but fear God and obey his command? But will we actually manage to carry it off? We can follow this right through the Old Testament. It underlines all of Jeremiah's preaching. Jeremiah's statements about the human heart in Jeremiah seventeen, nine, and 10 are not isolated. They actually undergird all that he says all the way through his prophecy. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's Jeremiah 17, verse 10. And it's a chilling verse because it comes after Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The human heart is deceitful. I will search the heart. And you can even see evidence of this in in, in the kind of, well, the sketchy accounts of Nehemiah's um, kind of field preaching. I think Nehemiah's always been a little bit of a puzzle to me, but, but I think Nehemiah 13 suddenly starts to make sense. Um, at the end of the, the book, we don't actually have an account of what Nehemiah says, but you do have a record of Nehemiah's interaction with his people. Um, Nehemiah repeatedly goes back to them and tries to kind of drag them kicking and screaming back to the Lord. Um, at the end, Nehemiah 13 verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. Um, Verse 20, the merchants in the cellars, all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Uh, From that time, they did not come on the Sabbath. Uh, then I commanded the Levites that they should purify the, themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love as I fight this one, one man battle. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they couldn't speak the language of Judah but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And uh, it's funny... In the books that take Nehemiah as a model of Christian leadership, they generally don't focus much on <laughs> Nehemiah 13. And I made them swear in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to your Oh, Did Solomon, king of Israel, sin? Did he not sin the account of such women? 27, Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil? And so it goes on. Verse 28, One of the sons of Jehoiada son of Eliashib, the high priest, the son-in-law of Sambal at the Horonite, therefore I chased him from me what am of an all action guy in chapter 13 he says this remember them oh my god because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites then I cleansed them from everything foreign who knows what he had to do to do that and I established the duties of priests and Levites each in its work and provided for the wood offering and appointed times and for the first fruits and then the book finishes with basically a sigh remember me oh my god for good why, why is Nehemiah finding it such hard going? It's because of the hearts of the people. He says, I am doing my best here, but I'm swimming against the tide. Now, what does all this have in common? And, and we could multiply examples of this. But it seems to imply that there is little or no possibility of change this side of the New Covenant. All this preaching sounds the dominant note of Old Testament anthropology, which I would argue is sounded in Genesis 3, and it applies it. The focus is not on analysing the human psyche, but rather on explaining how sin has ravaged every part of the whole person, thus making the need for a new covenant painfully obvious. Uh, interesting, on the plane on the way over, I was reading a marvellous uh, article in the new edition of Thamelios. It's on the, the Gospel Coalition website um, by Mark Sossey, and it's called Canon and Tradition. And it's a great explanation of how the, the church fathers, the early church fathers, neglected this idea of new covenant almost completely in their biblical theology, uh, a lack which really was only recovered at, at the Reformation But that one's for free. Uh, Now to that last point. How do people change in the Old Testament? Let me deliver this, just develop this a bit further. And I think this will bring us right back into the centre of the flow for this conference. Um, If if that's what people are like in the Old Testament, if our wills, our minds, our kidneys, our ruach, our nephesh is all messed up, if our heart's broken, how do people change? Are they ever changed? Now, I'm not sure I'd ever thought about this before. Until I came across a little sentence at the end of the brief that Gary sent some months ago. How are people changed in the Old Testament? So here's a very preliminary conclusion. I'm open to being corrected on this. I'm not sure that they do. Not very much. Just think about individuals for a moment. Take Abraham. Of course, Abraham is is justified by faith. But in the text, in the Abraham narrative, where is the evidence that Abraham himself is actually transformed or changed in any massive and significant way? Well, let me put the flip side of it. What we do have in the second half of Genesis 12 and then later in Genesis 19 is the double incident where Abraham tries to save his own life while putting his wife at risk. Why do you have that double narrative in there? Could it be to to show that he hasn't changed? What about Jacob? And I'm almost loath to say this because you know, as I can hear the sound of some of my sermons on Jacob being kind of ripped up in the background. <laughs> But when you come to Jacob, how much evidence is there that Jacob is actually transformed? Does Jacob become straight at the end of his life? Think of the incident where Jacob meets Esau. Esau and Jacob make an arrangement that Jacob will travel to his house. Where does Jacob go? He goes in the opposite direction. Now, I've heard it argued that ancient Eastern hospitality means, of course, he would agree to go and then not show up. But actually, I think he just didn't show up. And then as that that carries on into the the Joseph narrative, does Jacob appear to be a radically transformed man who has learnt from the experience of growing up in a massively dysfunctional family and is determined not to repeat his mistakes? There you go, son. Have the special coat. What about Isaac? Missed Isaac out. If you've ever tried to preach a series on Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, you'll know that the middle week is a bit thin. That's a good week to preach on Romans. No? Because there's seldom there's hardly anything about Isaac and his growth of godliness. So you have the, the three patriarchs as the covenant is set up. Do we find three transformed individuals? I'm not sure that we do. What about Moses? Well, Instinctively, so yeah, Moses, because you know Moses killed a guy in Egypt, you know, I had a problem with his temper and impetuosity. But there is the fact that Moses doesn't get into the land. Why doesn't he get into the land? Because of the same impetuosity that got him kicked out of Egypt essentially. What about David? How does David finish? If you've read the first couple of chapters of First Kings? They are a terribly sad finish for the man after God's own heart. Is God at work in in these men's lives? Of course he is. But could you really describe it as as moral transformation? Progressive sanctification? What about Solomon? I think one of the great mysteries in the Old Testament is how Solomon can be so lauded as the, the wisest man who ever lived and yet in First Kings makes a complete shipwreck of his life and his reign now there is some suggestion I think in Song of Songs that Solomon as an older man reflects and realises the terrible choices that he has made but regret and remorse isn't the same thing as transformation is there a deliberate strategy? It may not be the, the major note of the, the narrative, but is there a deliberate strategy, strategy to show that even for these godly men, change remained just beyond their grasp? I wouldn't go to the stake for it, but I think there might be. But, but what you could argue about it, at an individual level is easily demonstrable when it comes to the people of God as a whole. God's people, it seems, never change. As the Old Testament unfolds, there's a growing sense of hopelessness. There's a sense of inevitability in the run-up to the exile. There's a deep sense of frustration after the exile, which is not resolved by the return. Because the truth is, the people of God are still basically the same. We, we see this all, all the way through. The, 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 the prophets in the run-up to the exile and those who work during and after. Jeremiah 13 verse 23 says this. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. It's not going to happen, God says. Read through lamentations. What suggestion is there that the people are going to be any different? There isn't one. In Ezekiel chapter 9, when God comes um, to put a mark on the foreheads of the faithful people, it's interesting how they're described. Are these the the people who have shown spiritual progress? No. Put a mark, Ezekiel 9 verse 4, on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in the city. Mourning over sin, but not positive transformation. The great prayer in Daniel 9. In Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, Daniel basically re- rehearses the fact that the covenant is broken, that God's people have been breaking promises for 700 years, and at the end of it just cries out and said, Lord, please do something. I don't know what, but fix this. You see the same in Nehemiah 13 that we just looked at, this growing sense of frustration. We find it right at the end of, uh, of the English Bible and the English Old Testament in Malachi 4 verse 6. What needs to happen? We need Elijah to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest, God says, I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. See, the only real discussion of change in the Old Testament comes, I think, in the New Covenant passages in Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 9 and following up to 36. And in the places where the New Covenant is longed for, Daniel 9, Joel 2 and so on. The New Covenant is the only hope for lasting change in the life of the people of God. For only that can reverse the catastrophic effects of the fall. Only that can reorder the disorder we see in every page of the Old Testament. Where human nature, whether heart, spirit, soul, kidneys, flesh, bowels, it all lies exposed by our actions as broken. Uh, All these things belong to promise-breaking people who need new hearts, new spirits, ultimately new flesh. So can people change in the Old Testament? I think not yet is the answer until the New Covenant comes. Shall we pray together? Father, we pray that every time we open your word, every time we think about your word, every time we think of you, that you would give us the help that we need, that there would be no gap between our thoughts and and our words and our actions, no divide between our minds and our hearts, but that you would work in us as your people to help us to think and act like the Lord Jesus Christ and in ways that bring honour and glory to you as we learn more of our weakness and more of your greatness. In Jesus' name. Amen.